So if any of your listeners have got some time in 2019 and want to help move a tuk-tuk across planet Earth, they're welcome to reach out. Because one of the funny things is because my friends are really adventurous, heaps of people put their hand up for Iran and Central Asia and a few fewer to, to say, like, I'll drive across New Zealand. So, <laughs> um, yeah, we've got a lot of the complex part of the world covered, but it's a big, it's a big planet. The Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, episode 358. Australia is home to the top 10 deadliest snakes in the world, but the last time somebody died from a spider bite in Australia was 1981. So you're safe, I guess. The very first trip I took with a Tortuga backpack was to Australia, and I was so excited to travel my Tortuga backpack because a year before that, I had bought my very first travel backpack, and I liked it, but there was an issue. It was too tall to be carry-on compliant. Now, why they made this backpack just like an inch or two too tall to be carry-on compliant is beyond me, but thankfully, someone at Tortuga said, hey, let's make sure this is the maximum carry-on size, and I was pretty excited because for a whole year with the other backpack, I worried that they were going to check it out, you know, make me put it in that little holder, and they're going to say, nope, 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 this is just an inch or two too big. You're going to have to check. You're going to have to pay money. But I knew with this new Tortuga backpack that if they made me do that, I was going to be fine. I was going to put it in that little cage. It was going to fit and it was going to be carry on compliant. So to this day, the Tortuga backpacks are the ones that I travel with. If you want the best maximum carry on size travel backpack out there, check it out. They've got a range of options for you. You can check it out. Tortugabackpacks.com. Don't forget to use that promo code EPOP, E-P-O-P, all capital letters, that'll get you 10% off your entire order. Australia is one of my favorite countries in the world that I've been to. And New Zealand is the very top of the list of countries that we want to go to that we haven't been to yet. But there's an issue with both those countries. And that is, if you're coming from the United States, it can be very, very expensive to get a flight over to that part of the world, which makes sense. It is an absolutely long way to go. But I've got some good news for you. We have an app out. It's called Jetto, J-E-T-T-O. If you haven't downloaded it yet, check it out. It's on all the app stores. And what it'll do is send you the cheapest flight deals out there. Thankfully, we've been able to put out some amazing deals to New Zealand and to Australia. We're talking about from mainland US, stuff under $600. That's about half the price that a normal flight would cost you. So if you haven't downloaded the app yet, go do it now. Jetto, J-E-T-T-O, totally free to download, and you'll start getting cheap flight deals directly to your phone. Hello, travel nerds, and welcome to the Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast, the show that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. I'm your host, Travis Sherry, and joining me today is someone who has lived, worked, and traveled in over 150 countries, who set a Guinness World Record on a 3,700-kilometer rail journey across China, and who, by the time you're listening to this, will have embarked on and hopefully completed a journey driving a solar-powered tuk-tuk across all of Australia, Julian O'Shea, founder of Unbound and Solar Tuck. Julian, thanks for joining me today. Huge welcome. It's great to be here. Great to chat. And just so everyone knows, Julian's up at 6 a.m. because he's on the other side of the world. He's over there in Melbourne in Australia. So big applause for that, my man, for getting up and uh, starting your morning with us. So I appreciate it. And uh, we are going to talk about a lot of stuff today. We're going to talk about your education program, Unbound, which focuses on hands-on learning for entrepreneurs by getting them out and working in projects in the world, not just in the classroom. We're going to talk about the Guinness Record, your solar power tuk-tuk journey across Australia, where that crazy idea came from. And of course, we're going to talk about some of our favorite travel spots and mishaps. But first, question that I think I'm interested in and everyone listening is interested in, everything you're doing is around travel. So where did this love 
of travel come from? Why is travel the main or one of the main priorities in your life versus just this secondary or tertiary thing for most people? Yeah, and it didn't come easily. So I grew up in remote South Australia. So I lived um, around five hours drive to the nearest traffic light. You know, this type of part of the world that that really is disconnected. It's not like, you know, Australia's an island nation. It's not like there's other countries and cultures super close. Um, so it didn't kind of happen naturally. And um, my work now is involves taking university students on trips around the world, but I wasn't that person. I didn't leave the country once from the moment I started uni to the day that I graduated in Australia the whole time. So it kind of has been a slow creep and a slow build. But um, for me, the thing that really shot me to say, hey, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to spend my time doing, was kind of when I took an adult, a grown-up gap year, um, when I transitioned from working as an engineer to doing this work in international development. And that was kind of a year of travel and exploration. And then I decided, yeah, I want to make this my career. So what brought about that adult gap year? Because like you said, you're someone who grew up far from anything. You didn't travel a lot. It wasn't ingrained in you as a parent or, or by your parents. But then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to take on this this big trip. What was like what was egging you on? Or was it just a nagging 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 over years that you finally think either I do this or this is going to drive me bonkers. Yeah, look, I think a lot of people realize when they move from university to the workforce that they go from someone who might have a lot of time and no money to people that have a bit of money now and no time. So when you are working full time and, you know, different cultures work different, you know, number of weeks per year, it isn't easy to take a, take a lot of time off. So I think mentally you start to make a note of all the things you'd like to do in the world. Um, so when I transitioned from that, from working as an engineer, I think I had a bit of a long list of things that I'd love to do. And it is a bit of part of the Australian culture to do longer term travel, to, to spend a year away or six months away. I think the reason is is that it's not easy to to leave the country, to leave the continent, that you'll be flying a long way. Um, I live in beautiful Melbourne, and yeah, the first three hours of the flight, four hours of the flight, you look down and you're still very much over Australia. So what does that mean? It means that when you travel, you'll often spend a bit of time and do some kind of overlanding, and that's exactly what I did. So I wanted to change my work, um, and rather than do the normal thing, like jump on a job search website, I'm, yeah, kind of quit and bought a one-way flight to Southeast Asia and let, let the whole journey begin. What did your friends, family, work colleagues, what, were the, what was their reaction to that of saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what my job is going to look like, but I know that if I get out of here, it's going to work itself out and I'm going to start to figure stuff out a lot differently than if I sat in front of my computer and hit apply, 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 apply. Yeah, people were supportive. Um, I do think there is a positive culture of taking that kind of breathing space. Um, gap years are common between high school and university or even university into the first real work. So the idea wasn't that crazy. Um, that concern that people have around, you know, gaps in the resume, um, I had a little bit of that going into this process. And the way I navigated it, and I've, I've kind of given this advice to other people, is I found a not-for-profit that I'd done a bit of work with that was all around education projects. And I kind of put up my hand and said, look, I've got a year. I can go and visit anyone you want around the world. Just give me the, the um, unpaid job title of International Outreach Officer, um, and I'll write you a nice report at the end of it. Um, and that was really amazing because it did two things. One is that it solved that gap. If anyone asks, like, oh, you did this international outreach role where you traveled to these countries and did all these meetings and wrote this report, um, that professionally it was actually moving me forward, not even pressing pause. Um, and two, it gave me permission to reach out to organizations to say, I've come all the way from Australia to whether it was Malaysia or Siberia or Europe, can we catch up for a coffee and can you tell me a bit more about your work? And people were really generous with their time. And that shaped exactly what I wanted to do because I had a chance to see amazing international initiatives that I could then move into in my future career. 
That is brilliant advice and way better than the advice I give, which is always like, uh, don't worry about that gap. If you do something like if you, if you have to go back and, and what I find is that most people don't like, let's say they take a year and then they, they probably don't go back to the field they were in. They, they find something else or they start their own company. But if you do, I always just say like, you know, put on there or talk about that you traveled probably. And this happened to me when I came back and, and did a temp temporary job. All they wanted to know about was that they didn't want to know about past experience because they had like 50 other people that have had worked in schools before all of a sudden they're like you drove baseballs around europe for a tournament like tell me about that and all of a sudden an hour later those are the stories i'm regaling them with because they're living vicariously through your experience there now for you all right so let's talk about that year that you decided to take off what was your like in the back of your head what was your thought of what it would look like did you think that you'd come back to the engineering space or did you have an idea of what might happen at the end of the year or was it completely open-ended i don't know what's happening i don't even have a concept of what's happening i'm just gonna let it like the wind take me as it as it goes yeah this was um kind of earlier in my travel day so i certainly researched a lot 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 more than I do now um, about what the kind of travel process was like. Um, I knew I wanted to make a career transition. Um, so that kind of shaped some things in that who I would reach out to, what I would read, where I'd do some um, remote volunteering. Um, and something that I discovered, which sounds counterintuitive, is that if you're doing long-term travel and you have that breathing space, you can actually be more choosy about where you work. Because if you wanted to take a year off, you can start looking for perfect jobs at the nine-month mark. And if you find one, yeah, cut your, short, cut your trip short by a month or two. Or if you don't find one, you can add a month or two to your trip. So in essence, you've got six months to try to find the ideal job. Whereas if most people you know, got made redundant or were fired next week, they would need to pay the rent. They'd need to find something right then. So that was actually surprising and, um, yeah, you can be really kind of choosy with exactly the work you want to do. Um, so the work that I fell into as part of this journey, um, the trip I did was travelling overland across Eurasia. So I started in Thailand and then travelled entirely overland using public transport, whether it's buses, trains and tuk-tuks across um, Asia, up through China, then took the Trans-Mongolian um, right across Siberia and Russia and, and into Europe. And by the time I popped out into Estonia, um, my passport was full, so I had to bide some time. So I contacted a friend back in Australia and said, hey, I, um, you know, I've got some time to kill while I wait for my new passport. Can I do some report writing, research, volunteering for your not-for-profit organization? And that was the group that I eventually went back and worked for when I finished my trip 12 months later. Wow. All right. Let's talk about this overland thing first. And you set a Guinness World Record. What is the record for? And did it just happen or was it was it planned out? No, you don't accidentally do what I did. Um, so the record itself was... Um, so basically, I loved the Guinness Book of Records as a kid. There were lots of people doing lots of weird and amazing things. Um and most people just get over it. That's the difference. I never quite, I never quite did. Um, so the record, I wanted to do something that I was interested in because growing my fingernails to 10 meters didn't really sound like something I wanted to aspire to. Plus, it, so, it takes a long time too, right? I mean, that's, that's years it of does. effort there. Correct, correct, correct. So I wanted to do something that aligns with my interest, which for me is overland travel. I like sustainability. I like visiting new places. So the record that I had my eye on was the longest distance covered by train. And Guinness do it in a fixed period of time. They give you 24 hours to, to um, ride trains up and down the country. And the previous record was in Japan, riding the Shinkansen up, up and down the country. But, um, yeah, over the past decade, uh, China has been an absolute world leader in putting in fast rail. So I think the stats is in 2006 they had zero kilometers of fast train and they've now got more than the rest of the world combined so they have just put it in at an exceptional speed so yeah i said i kind of said hey this record that exists you could do it in a different country in china and and set a set a new time and that's exactly what i did so i traveled to china um and spent 24 hours riding trains up and down the country um per guinness rules and finished 24 hours later at just over 3,700 Ks and a new Guinness World Record. Wow. All right. So let's put that in perspective really quickly. 
3,700 kilometers would get you how far across Australia if you were to start on the the East Coast? How like where would you end up if you were going across Australia? Um, so I know this because I've just planned a journey across the country. That's why I said um, Australia, what? not the U.S. I was That's like, ah, oh, he might know, like he it. might know Australia here. I like it. From bottom to top is uh, close to three thousand. So it's the entire length of Australia in, in a day. Yeah. These- in- <laughs> These trains are fast. Yeah, that's a bit faster than your uh, solar power tuk tuk's going to go, which we'll get into in just a bit. So you do this, you do this trip there, or you do that crazy part of the trip, right? Where you set a Guinness World Record, and just because I'm interested in it too, because like you, I've always wanted to just have a record. How much time and effort went into the not the actual travel of it? Because we know there's 24 hours. But the planning, the setting up with Guinness, and then, of course, the verifying and submitting and all probably the whole process. What, what did that look like to get your name in the record book? Yeah, so um, the process is all outlined on the Guinness website where you go and find a record that exists and say, hey, I want to beat it. Um, the process um, moves fairly slowly, but they'll send you the, the rule book around what you need to do for this exact record. Um, and after that, it becomes a bit like a... You know, in the same way that people do crosswords or Sudoku puzzles, it was kind of like that, looking at Chinese rail schedules, translating them from Chinese to English, making sure they match up and align, and you trying to work out if you can get from one station in Beijing to the other in the 20 minutes before the next train takes off. So that that was a big part of the process, um, you know, trying to plot out your schedule, which if you're a bit of a travel nerd and a technical mind like mine is, is part of the fun. Um, but there were definitely some kind of challenges along the way. Um, so, I t- so I booked all my tickets and, and they were um, there for me to pick up when I flew into China. Um, and I realized that you need to get a logbook signed. So half the process is setting the record and half the process is recording it to prove that you actually did it. So the record that Guinness wanted to see for this particular one was your um, these days they'd want to see GPS and a lot more video, but um, they wanted to see your train tickets and a logbook to say when you start and finish and um, people, officials on the train, um, you know, to sign that you were there. So I realized that I don't speak a single word of Chinese. So I got the person at the hotel to write a note that I could show people to, to sign it. And I had this discussion. I'm like, um, I'm doing this project. So do you know the Guinness Book of Records? And he's like, no, it's not really a thing in China, which makes it very hard to explain what you're doing because it's a bit of a silly, pointless project. Um, So he wrote this lovely note that I could show people and I'd show it to these young um, Chinese train attendants who would kind of giggle and sign it and scamper off. And I brought it back to Australia and asked my Chinese-speaking friend what it actually said, like what the specific words were. And it was something like, hello, I'm from Australia. I'm trying to ride all of the trains. Can you please prove that I was here? And where in Australia we would sign off with something like "Thank you." They they really he really kind of overdid it. He's like, "May fortune be showered upon you and your family. Um, have a blessed day." And yeah, that was the process of of getting the the logbook signed. Nice. Well, I mean, hey, if you're going to overdo it, at least overdo it in that way. And I like that he in said a positive way. Right, right. right. I like that he said all the trains. Who knows? Maybe that's your next goal, right? Maybe every single all rail line trains. in China. All the trains. So now, okay, do do you have, like, can you pull out a copy of the Guinness Book of World Records and see your name in it now? Is that, does that work or is it only, or some records only online? Um, so some are only online. So the book, I think publishes 10 to 20% of the total set. But what you do get is a really lovely, um, your official certificate that you can um, show your Nana and put on your wall. Nice, nice. Awesome. All right. So you did that trip. That was part of obviously uh, this huge, uh, what we would call life-changing trip at this point. And then you came back and you started working for your friend's nonprofit. Where did the idea for Unbound and the the company that you've now started, where did that come and how many years later did that all like end up fleshing itself out? Yeah, so I worked for that um, not-for-profit in, in, and the role was around education. So that was one of the lessons that I learned in doing this trip was that I really love people that were using um, education as a tool for social change. So I worked at an international development not-for-profit, but my work was all around universities and education. 
So connecting um, students to technical challenges around the world. So managed research projects that looked at deforestation in Nepal. Um, I ran education programs with schools, with university students, but really looking at that global lens. How do we um, think international and apply our technical skills to make real change? Um, so I worked there for five years, and over that time, just really built my confidence and building and bringing initiatives to like. Um, my part of the organization was a social enterprise, and that we weren't reliant on donations. We kind of earned all the dollars that we spent, so providing really great services to universities and schools. Um, so over time, I was just ready for a change and realized that, you know, I probably have the skills to be able to set something up and do it myself, and that's kind of where um, Unbound came from really doubling down on education, um, but really looking at multidisciplinary, collaborative, and two-way education projects. And so what does, if you could sum it up for us, what does Unbound do and who is it for? Yeah, so the organization's fairly new. We're um, about two years in. So what Unbound does is we work with Australian universities to design and deliver education projects that really get students out of the classroom into the real world working on practical projects. Um, I think the current model of sit in a lecture hall with 200 other people while you're getting spoken at on lecture slides that haven't changed since 2001, it's just not the best way to do education. So our philosophy is, well, if, if I was gonna design it, what would it look like? And the Unbound programs are kind of my answer. So the way they often look like are study tours or study intensives. And where I'm focusing is a region that's so important for Australia, which is emerging Asia. So we spend a lot of time in India, Nepal, Thailand, Vietnam, and really look at um, uh, kind of topics that, that those countries are just exceptional at. So um, one of the things I really wanted to turn on its head is this current idea that when people study, they often go to the Western world, they'll go to Western Europe or North America to learn. But if they're going to a place like Nepal or India, they often go to help, to volunteer. And I wanted to shift that. I'm like, India's clever. Nepal, Nepal is resilient. Like, we should be there to learn from and with rather than this idea that we're a country that has knowledge, you're a country that needs help. I don't think that's the case at all. And I really wanted to change that dynamic. So give us an example of a project or two that you guys have been able to, to get in place or put in place in the last two years with Unbound. Yeah, so one of the great projects that I'm um, – a really great collaboration is in Nepal. So we work there with an amazing design organization that um, builds really exceptionally designed sustainable materials. The Their CEO is off to Europe to be kind of compete in the architecture awards globally, um, and his buildings are made of bamboo and, and compressed earth, while most people's buildings there are these massive – glass and steel structures. So they're doing really high quality work. Um, it really came to the fore after the 2015 earthquake, where a lot of buildings across the country were just destroyed. And even though they use traditional materials, they're exceptionally strong. So really high quality design. So a project that we've worked with them is a lot around um, innovation and, and showcasing new designs and technologies. And um, in Nepal, for anyone that's been in the rural areas, they realize that the roads stop quite close, like quite far from a lot of the villages. So you go from car, then to motorbike, and often the last bit is just people carrying things. So for his construction projects, moving things up and down the mountain are really challenging. So over a few series of projects, we designed and built a crane um, made of bamboo so it could lift up construction materials and then behind it was was a winch, so it could carry up to 100, 150 kilos um, of building materials up and down a mountain for the first time. Wow. And so are, are the students in the Australian universities, when you say collaborating, are they working with the Nepalese to design, to build, and to implement? So it's like a, a, a university student is a part of that process then. That's spot on. So the Unbound team, so people from my organization will go and facilitate those trips and we'll take 10, 20 um, Australian students and they'll work alongside their Nepali counterparts. And that knowledge exchange is fantastic. So we've had design students and architecture students before and, you know, they're learning at these top ranked universities in Australia and they come up with their design and then they talk to their Nepali counterparts 
And it turns out none of the Australian students know how to use a power tool, but yet that's kind of the first thing they teach in, in engineering in Nepal. And they're like, don't worry, we'll show you how to do it. Um, and it just can be a really beautiful collaboration like that. How long then are the are the trips? Like it's not a semester long, right? Like they wouldn't be going through a semester. It'd be a shorter trip where they're actually doing the work. But it's, yeah, what does that run? A week, two weeks, three weeks? Yeah, generally um, two or three weeks. So they're designed to be short for a few reasons. I did a, a lot of research before starting this um, initiative. And something they found is that the programs that are a lot longer in length tend to be taken a lot by um, students with better financial resources. So in Australia, the term is high socioeconomic status students, whereas short-term programs can be done by anyone. That if you're only taking two or three weeks out of your life, you don't need to give up your apartment. You don't need to quit your job. You don't need to break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You can fit it into your life. So that was really important to us to design inclusive programs. Um, the other thing that we wanted to do is that we realized that people don't go to these countries that are kind of emerging um, for longer periods of time. That, that the idea of doing a full semester in Nepal is just not something people do. I looked at the stats and, yeah, from Australia, people will go to places like Canada and North America and some of the big modern Asian cities like Singapore or Hong Kong. But for developing countries, it just seems a bit of a step too far. So we really wanted to do something that will get students there. Yeah, which is an interesting concept and, and super smart. Obviously, you looked into it and figured it out, and that's why you planned it that way. But I think uh, a lot of times this idea that you're going to study abroad, and we can touch on that, is, all right, you're going to go abroad, you're going to go for a semester or a year. And and it's a, I, I didn't study abroad. Probably the one, I won't even say regret, because we're making up for lost time at this point. And, and obviously, you said you didn't either. But this idea, though, it's cool, but then you're still doing the same thing. You're, you're sitting in a lecture. You're just doing it somewhere else. So that's great. It's like one piece of the puzzle. Oh, are you getting these new experiences? I love what you guys are doing because you're saying, hey, you're getting and going somewhere new, but you're actually then changing the way you're learning, too. So you're changing your environment and changing the way you learn because you're not in a classroom. So it's kind of just this, it's like a double down on uh, on the that's actual right. study abroad on program. Immersive experience. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, that's spot on. Now, what, what do you see then for the amount of students? Like, are you pulling students from a certain university or is it, or let's say it's a trip of 10 students. Is it people like one student from 10 different ones, 10 students from one university? How does that shake out? Yeah, so we work with um, different unis across the country. Occasionally, it's from a singular uni, but we really love the collaboration that happens within the group. So, look, different university systems around the world are different, but in Australia, still, you often stay in your discipline. So, I did a four-year engineering degree, and every single one of those subjects was an engineering subject. There wasn't a single elective in my course where I could have studied French or um, learned history. They were very structured, very full degrees. So one of the joys of our project is we designed them with multiple universities with different faculties. So if a university themselves couldn't make a multidisciplinary project because you know it doesn't quite fit in their degree program, we can create that. So you could get um, engineering students from one uni, design students from another, art students from another, and then that creates an amazing multidisciplinary program which, um, as you know, leads to really great project outcomes, people that think differently, people that bring different ideas to the table. Um, and that, that's worked really great for us. And then students make friends from across the country. Yeah. Talking about projects, I want to get into this idea for a solar powered tuk-tuk and driving that across Australia. Where did the idea come from? So it was on one of these trips um, earlier this year, back in, back in um, February. Um, and I was in Thailand, which is kind of the home of the home of the tuk-tuk. So just zipping around and having a great time, as anyone that's done it knows that it is a lot of joy to, to navigate the busy streets of Bangkok or wherever in the world you are. And I just remember thinking, Australia doesn't have this. Australia doesn't, you know, this isn't part of our kind of road and transport makeup. I wonder if it would be possible. Um, and as mentioned, I've got a technical background. I, I am a nerd for these types of projects. Um, and just started, and this is, I think, how again, how I recommend that people start projects. What you do is you open a, a chat app and you put the three or four people most likely to say yes 
to your weird idea and just propose it to the group. And that's exactly what I did. Who wants to buy a tuk-tuk question mark kind of, I think was the opening question. Um, and if you work with ambitious people like I do, it just kind of grew from there. So it went from just to get a tuk-tuk to, well, what if we did it and made it more sustainable, uh, made it electric, and then maybe made it solar electric, and it's kind of kind of grown from there. So the project kicked off, um, yeah, at the start of the year, and it's grown and grown and grown. And what is the, I guess, goal or mission of the of the Solar Took project? So Unbound is an education organization, and the things we really care about are um, working across cultures. We care a lot about um, sustainability and social impact and engagement in a really interesting and fun way. So where it kind of has grown to is the projects that I described about overseas. They're really brilliant. Like it's so immersive, it's so deep, but the numbers are fairly small. Like it takes a lot of resources to run an intensive overseas, whether it's in innovation spaces in India or villages in Nepal. So I was really keen to do a project that reached thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people. So the idea was, well, if we do something so interesting that the media kind of have to talk about it, that it will get picked up and shared, that people will recognize it, and Instagram it and tweet it, then maybe um, that's that's a way to do it. Much lighter education, of course, but but a lot a lot a lot bigger, a lot broader reach. So the idea was, well, maybe our tuk tuk can be our outreach mobile that we can drive it around Melbourne and go to schools and talk about um, sustainability and solar and energy. And this is where competitive people grow. Or rather than just Melbourne, we could drive it across the state or the country. And then it's grown to our current proposal, which is where we're going to kick off this week, drive it the full length of Australia from Melbourne to the Great Barrier Reef. But then that's only phase one. Phase two is a full circumnavigation of planet Earth. I, so, I, I saw that. On the site I was going through, I'm like, oh, that's cool. They're going to drive it top to bottom to Australia. And then I was like, wait a second. There's another little thing here. Phase two, all the way around the world. All right. So, let, <laughs> which I love. I love that, like, hey, what's the biggest thing we can feasibly do? Or not even feasibly. Like, what, what is the biggest thing we can do? What's the limit? That's yeah. Right. right. What's the limit? Like, we're not... We're not putting it out in space yet. All right, cool. So we have this Earth that we're on. All right, let's go around that. What does that look like? What is the like? All right, first off, biggest question. Cool. It's a tuk tuk. It can go on roads, so on ground. What are you guys doing for oceans? And uh, yeah, let's start with that, and then let's get into like where you plan <laughs> on going. So the tuk tuk itself is um, we we collaborated with a. Um, a factory in Thailand called the Tuk Tuk Factory. So they've, they build these Tuk Tuks, electric Tuk Tuks. So we use one of their designs. Now theirs is really clever in that it um, has been built to EU standards because the challenge in this project has been complying with Australian design and road rules because they are very tricky. So we've done that. We worked with a university here in Melbourne, RMIT, and they um, helped us with the, um, the solar design so we now have a tuk-tuk um, that can do up to around, we're still doing testing, 300 kilometers per day on a charge. We changed the batteries out to Tesla batteries. So we've got a pretty great vehicle. It drives at 50 kilometers an hour. So it's a slow meandering around planet Earth. Um, but really the, the, the number of choice is that 200 to 300 kilometers per day. So you can kind of plot a route like that. Um, so the plan is, um, as mentioned, to do this Australia journey, which we really hope will start to get a bit of interest and traction. Um, and we think that'll take around three weeks to drive from the south to the north of the country up the east coast, which is where all the people live, um, and go to schools, go to community events, work with companies, showcase am amazing renewable technologies happening across the country. And then in um, 2019, we're going to put it in a shipping container and um take it to Singapore. And some really amazing parts of the project is we've been supported by the Australia ASEAN, Association for Southeast Asian Nations Council, um, and they're actually supporting this. So this is part of the Australia and Southeast Asia collaboration. And we're going to drive it, the next step is drive it across Southeast Asia. So from Singapore through Malaysia into Thailand, it can visit, visit its old home, see where it was built. Um, and then across Thailand into Vietnam, up in the north, um, as the next phase of the global trip. And will it be all 
you doing it? Or will you have a team with you? Or are there going to be people swapping in and out? So for the Australia leg, I'll do the whole thing. And then we'll use a bit of a relay approach. And I think it's going to be really fun. I think we're going to get people that want to drive one leg of a tuk-tuk around the world. So I think what we'll do is we'll, do, we'll have defined dates in different places. And between A and B, you can take two weeks to get from there to there. You can do your own trip. And then the next person knows to plan to meet you in part B. Hand over. Here's the keys. Here's how you drive it. Good luck. Nice. All right. Well, when you guys get to the uh, – well, wherever I am, but I, I live – outside of Philadelphia. So when you get to this part of the world, when you get to the US, I'll have to perk my ears up and make sure that I can uh, at least get a little bit of a run in that tuk-tuk. Um, awesome. awesome. All right. So what are the biggest obstacles you think you're going to face? Because you've already have it built and, and you you know, you know spent some time doing that, which honestly, I'm very, uh, I'm shocked. And, and it's pretty amazing that you started the idea in February and already have something that's ready to rock and roll and and kitted out and Tesla battery and all that. But I guess you're an engineer, so you know you probably got, got that done pretty quickly. But what do you think are going to be obstacles of the actual trip, whether it be the Australia one or then obviously the bigger one? So one of the big ones that we've been working on um, in the last 24 hours is planning logistics with uncertainty because we don't know exactly how long it takes to charge and on different power systems. So... You know, Australia's got a good electrical grid. You can, you know, charge at the right rate, but that's not going to be the case in, in you know, rural China. That's not going to be necessarily the case in northern Thailand. So there's going to be a lot of question marks in a lot of places. So we're going to have to be a lot more flexible as the trip goes on. Um, I think weather conditions is going to be one. Uh, what it's like in monsoon rains is not what it's going to be like on a beautiful sunny day, which is what it was like driving this weekend. Um and then just a lot of the challenges of, of arranging any kind of trip with complexity. This one is more complex in that you need kind of licenses possibly and permits as you go through different countries. And um, I've heard China's going to be quite complex because we'll be going from um, Vietnam and aim to get into Nepal. That goes through Tibet. That will need certain licenses and possibly even an accompanying escort vehicle for, for a part of it. So that's going to get a bit pricey. Um, is there kind of kind of part of it and as i mentioned we're going to use this relay model so finding people that want to and are able to drive it so if any of your listeners have got some time in 2019 and want to help move a tuk-tuk across planet earth they're welcome to reach out because um, one of the funny things is because my friends are really adventurous heaps of people put their hand up for iran and central asia and a few fewer to do, say like i'll drive across new zealand so <laughs> um, yeah we've got a lot of the complex part of the world covered but it's a big, it's a big planet. Yeah, people are like, oh, Mongolia, sweet. Then they like Switzerland, eh? You know what? I, uh, um, that is, yeah, it's fascinating. And then with that idea of of the travel for the parts that you're doing, are you going to be like, where are you going to be sleeping? What is the type of travel style that you're going to be keeping when you're the one who's actually taking the journey? So in Australia, we've um, put this website up and we're starting to get some really lovely media about it. And people are actually contacting us to say, oh, we're really interested in zero emission living in Noosa. If you're here, we'd love to look after you and we can um, show you some of the projects we're working on. So I think we're going to get kind of billeted out, like stay with people a lot through the through the trip. We are taking some kind of basic camping gear that, you know, if a school, she said, you can, you can have a nap on our oval, then we can put up a tent and stay there. Um, and we think that a lot of people are going to, that we're going to know and we're going to explicitly ask if people have any friends and partners and contacts in different places and just reach out to them. So we're going to try to be a really lovely guest um, and visit these places to get that real local inside knowledge, which makes travel just so much more fun. Oh, for sure. And then when you are, when it is a relay and you are the one who's not driving, are you going to be Staying with the tuk-tuk, are you going to head back to Australia? Like, let's say we're in, uh, you're, you're through Vietnam. Let's say, let's say you're going through the Middle East, or you're at that portion of the trip, and you have a buddy who's taking it, or someone you know is taking it for two weeks. Are you? What's your plan? Kick back, relax, go back to Australia, travel with them. I will travel with for some, and I think I'll be back in Australia for a lot of it, running, running Unbound and the business and being very, I think a lot of the plan is going to be being remotely jealous about these amazing pictures that are coming in from this stunning part of the world going, oh, I should be there for that leg. That's so great. 
because magic moments are just going to happen. You know, anyone that's traveled kind of overland and slowly, whether it's on cycle or on foot or whatever, they just happen. They happen a lot and you never know what they're going to look like and they're wonderful when they do. So I think there's going to be a lot of remote jealousy and then helping the project from afar, do things like media, do things like storytelling and, and support the next stage of the logistics. What do you think will be the timeline for completing that phase two journey? So we aim to kick it off in around March 2019 in Southeast Asia. So that'll be the first part. Um, so to do Planet Earth, you need to put on a shipping container a couple of times from Asia to from Australia to Asia. You can drive across the Eurasian continent and finish in Europe without needing needing a boat. And then there'll be one step from um, Europe to, to your part of the world, to North America, then across North America and then back. So um, I think that'll happen over the course of around a year. Okay. And then do you have the shipping? I know I'm asking logistics here, but it's fun. Do you have the shipping containers planned out, like uh, certain dates? And how much lead time do you need to have a tuk-tuk on a shipping container? Can you just roll up be like, all right, we want to send this here. And then the next day they throw it on. Because that would be... In my mind, one of the things that would kind of put little like flagpoles in the ground for dates. For sure. That's right. That's spot on. And, and so we haven't locked in exactly what those dates are yet because we're keen to give the Tuk Tuk a real test run across Australia to work out how far can you actually go? How far can you comfortably go? Can you push it? Does it need to all be very gentle? So once we know them, those numbers will firm up a lot quicker. Um, but you know, we're going from major ports. So like Australia to Singapore, there is a bit of movement across. Um, the Atlantic, there is a lot of um, movement. And from kind of officialdom, the tuk-tuk is the same as a car. So it's like if you were moving your own personal vehicle. It looks a bit funnier. It, it's going to have some weird permits in a few places. Um, but it's just like moving your own personal car from country A to country B. So it, it can be done and can be done in a you know, afford, somewhat affordable way. Yeah, speaking about affordable, I want to get some of your uh... – tips and hacks for ways that you save money while traveling. Now, obviously driving a tuk-tuk, I, I don't know, maybe it'd be more expensive, maybe it'll be less, who knows. But what are some of the things that you've done while you've traveled that you've said, all right, if I can, like, this is where I'm going to cut costs because everyone has a budget, right? And there's stuff that they prioritize. And I'm going to spend more money on this and then stuff they cut back on. What do you like to cut back on and found either lends to a better experience or just more money in your pocket for other things down the road? So that year I took off to travel was definitely a time of real budget traveling. Um, so, and I, it was very affordable. One of the things that I discovered that really led to that is go, deciding where you travel can make more of an impact as opposed to how you travel. That, that you can be as frugal as you want, but if you're spending your time in northern Norway, it doesn't matter how good you are and make every right decision and do everything correctly, it's just going to cost more than if you are a lot, lot looser in Vietnam. So if budget is a real issue, just maybe delay some of the places that you really want to get to and, folk, and go somewhere else because it is, as I said, a big world. Um, overlanding is just fantastic. So rather than flying from A to B to C, um, getting tickets where you start in one location and finish at the end. So for me, that was I, I went from Thailand to Turkey entirely overland, and that means every time you move, um, you know it's a, it's in it's local rates on buses and trains. And I love an overnight train because it's it feels a bit like magic, like you're teleporting that you go to sleep in one city and wake up in the next. You don't have to pay for a night's accommodation and you're, you're doing something at a very human level. So that that really helps keep costs down and it gives you an amazing experience. Yeah. What were some of your, your highlights of either that trip that you're talking about now or just trips and travel that you've done before or since? What, what do you think of when you say like, yep, these were those magical moments or magical places? Yeah. So in that overland um, trip, I, I traveled across Russia and a visa for Russia lasts about, if you just get a standard one for Australians, lasts about a month. So I spent a month doing the Trans-Siberian Railway. You can get on it and just cruise across the country and sit on a train for seven days. But but I got off a lot and, and um, saw an amazing part of the country. Um, and I'd been to Russia once before, just at a conference in, in St. Petersburg. So I messaged someone who I'd literally done two coffees with, say, hey, I'm coming back to your country. Can Can I, you know? can we say hi can we catch up and he's like well i'm not going to be home but 
here's a friend of mine who's studying international relations from Siberia, Russia, from like the furthest point from you know other countries. So this person I'd met once or twice linked me to someone that I'd never met. And yet, you know, just this hospitality that turns out in this amazing part of the world in central Russia. Um, so she said, hey, come and stay with me and my family. And, and just that local insider experience where you're very much off the beaten path, but getting great insights into these incredible places. And that type of hospitality has happened yeah, in places that you may not necessarily think. And that's always really great travel. Yeah, it is. What about your biggest travel mishap? Um, I've made a few mistakes in my time. Um, I think one that kind of comes to mind is traveling in China is really complex and hard. It's it's built for tourism, but it's built for Chinese tourism. Mm, so Very true, very, very true. Very little thing is available in English. Internet is very tricky to connect. Easier now than when than even a couple of years ago, and even more so than ten years ago. Um, so most travel problems can be solved with money or information, um, and I had neither of those things. So just the amount of time I spent trying to get a Chinese rail ticket. Um, this wasn't for my Guinness record. This was just general travel. Um, hours waiting in line to be told to join another line to go through. And I get this last ticket available on this overnight train. And I'm like, do you have this type of class? No. This type of class? No. So I'm, so I'm on kind of the lowest class taking this overnight 14-hour train that is just full like so full that someone is sitting on the toilet and they would get up when people needed to use it. And it was the worst experience of my life. And then I had to do it the next night as well because the same process repeats. And I'm like, I should have been smarter. I should have booked this in advance. And it was all too late. The man sitting on the toilet was probably in a higher class than you, right? Like, I mean, he had the toilet Correct. to sit on. You were... He got a seat. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Squished man. in like a sub- it is. It's one of those things where you're like, oh, this makes for a good story later on. Like, I'll push through one night. And then the second time, you're like, wait a second. This this now doesn't make for a good story because I have to do it all over again. Oh, man. What else do you have coming up in the pipeline? Either, I mean, we talked about the trip. That's gonna that's its own animal in its own right with the solar tuck. But what else do you have uh, coming up in the pipeline? Either unbound-wise, solar tuck, or just personal travel or development? Yeah, so Unbound is continuing to grow. So um, Unbound, if people want to just get a bit of an idea for what I do, the website's unbound.edu.au, so Education in Australia. Um, And we're expanding our program. So what I'm really excited about is we're doing our first Pacific program, looking at climate change and the development um, of these uh, islands in the Pacific. So that's going to be happening um, on the main island in Fiji in early 2019 and i'll be facilitating that for the first time which i'm really excited about so i just came back from a scoping tour and it was amazing to kind of head to the interior and and off the beaten path to see um what life's like there in kind of a traditional sense and how they're um changing as as more kind of tropical storms happen and, and climate change becomes a very real thing um so i'm excited to to grow our programs to weird places and then the project I've got on for 2019 that I'm really, really pumped about is um, uh, I think it was last year in America, there was a total solar eclipse that cut through the continent and was hugely, hugely seen and visible, probably one of the most seen eclipses in history. Now, I reckon 2 billion people saw it um, online or on the internet and obviously millions in person. So there's a total solar eclipse that's happening in two th- in 2019 through South America, and I'm going to be leading a project there because it's 100 years after another total solar eclipse that proved Einstein's theory of relativity. So we're doing a centenary expedition for that, where we're going to go and recreate that experiment using modern equipment, as well as bringing some century-old telescopes to Chile to recreate it the way that Eddington did back in 1919 in this experiment that just confirmed Einstein's theory, shot him to fame, and, um, yeah, rethought the way that we rethink the universe. That is, that's fantastic. That's really neat. So that will be an unbound project, or is that something completely different? So, so it's a um, project which Unbound is one of the partners of. Also, um, OSGRAV, the Australian Gravitational Wave Group, 
and that project is called Solarbrating Einstein. <laughs> You've got a way with making cool names for projects, man. I got to <laughs> give you that. not only coming up with thank cool you, projects, but yeah, you got some cool names. Awesome, man. Well, that gives people stuff to look out for, and I and guys certainly look out for the Solar Talk. Like it would be awesome to have multiple EPOP people uh, out there riding around and helping get it across the world. So, Julian, I just want to say thanks for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Um, I hope we made your morning fantastic because 6 a.m., man, I, I'm hoping this is a good way to start Great the day. Chat. Great <laughs> chat. Thank you for not only serving as an inspiration for, with your crazy travel adventures, but also creating something so big like Unbound that, that helps give others the opportunity to do things that they've never or might never have been able to do as, as students and then working with people in these countries that, again, like have so much to showcase and yet so often are seen as, oh, let's go help them. No, let them help help us. So thank you for that. Remind people one more time how they can get a hold of you if they want to follow all your projects. So my name is Julian O'Shea. Feel free to um, reach out via the Unbound website. So the website is unbound.edu.au. But follow along with our crazy tuk-tuk adventure. It's called Solar Tuk Expedition. So at Solar Tuk Expedition on the socials and the website for that is solartuk, S-O-L-A-R-T-U-K.org. Yeah, and we will link all that up in the show notes. That will be my very next Instagram follow as soon as we get out of here. Um, we'll link that all up in the show notes, guys. com slash shows. You can get to the show notes for this episode. Of course, that will link you to all the episodes that we've done as well, and you can get the show notes there as well. Thanks again, Julian. Really, really, really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today for your continued support that makes us a number one rated travel podcast. And until next time, happy free travels. I'll show you Paris and all the